0: Ishbosheth is up in the north, and he literally has no one. The only guy who ever supported him is now dead. And the army is now with David. And now it says all of Israel now is happy with everything David does. Ishbosheth, meanwhile, is just up in the palace. What do I do now? Chapter 4, verse 1 When Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he was very disheartened. Most likely scared out of his mind. And all of Israel was afraid. Now Saul's son had two men who were in charge of raiding units. One was named Ba'ana, and the other was Rakab. Those are good names for your sons. Ba'ana and Rakab are brothers who are the raiding parties of Saul. Now that's one of the ways you get your money is you go out and raid people and you bring them back. They were the sons of Ramon and the Barathite. Who was the Benjamite? Barathite is regarded as belonging to Benjamin. For the Barathites fled to to Gitma and has remained there at the residence foreigners until the present time. Now Saul's son Jonathan had a son who was crippled in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan arrived from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but in her haste to get away, he fell and was injured. Mephibosheth, or Mephibaba'al, was his name. So the narrator gives you these two, like seemingly out of context stories, and the first two, these stories basically are saying this: David is now king over all the tribes; he has the army, and the only last two male descendants of Saul are Ishbosheth, directly son, and the grandson Mephibosheth. What is David going to do? Is he going to act like the kings of all the other nations? Which wouldn't be too far-fetched because he kind of has been a little bit. Or is he going to honor that promise, that oath that he swore to both Jonathan and Saul? He swore to Jonathan before he went to run, I will not wipe out your family when I become king. And the second time that he spared Saul's life, he swore to Saul that he would not wipe out your family. So there are two surviving male descendants, the son of Ishbosheth and the grandson of Mephibosheth. They're alive, and David's now king. David's willing to rip Michael from her husband to secure his throne. Would he be willing to do this as well? Now we're also told that Mephibosheth is also crippled, because this actually adds to the tension more, because the Mephibosheth is not crippled just because he's crippled, he's crippled because of David, so to speak. His nursemaid, when he finds out that Saul is dead, immediately fears that David is going to come and kill all the descendants of Saul. So she grabs him in panic to run out into hiding, and the process trips and falls, lands on his legs, they break, and they're never set right. And so he becomes a cripple the rest of his life. So in some sense, it's the fear that David will be a king like all the other nations is what led to Mephibosheth being crippled. The narrator now introduces these two men to ask the question, what will David do? Is that fear legitimate? Not only that, Mephibosheth is a cripple. So if David goes and kills him, that's even more jacked up because this guy literally presents no threat. And none. this isn't my thinking, but there's no one in the ancient world that would back a leader who's crippled. Not that kind of a king later. Verse 5. Now the sons of Rimna, Barathoth, and Rechab, and Ba'anah went at the hottest part of the day, noon, to the home of ish as he was enjoying his midday rest, fiesta nap. They entered the house under the pretense of getting wheat and mortally wounded him in the stomach. Then Rechab and the brother B'ana stopped. The stopped. The Hebrew literally says they stabbed him in the stomach. There's a lot of gut stabbing in this book, actually, and you're going to see more because it's the quickest way to kill somebody. I mean, you can't. Knives in the skull are very unreliable, and hacking somebody's head off takes time. But the gut is a guaranteed death blow. Then they entered the house. They went and cut off his head, and taking his head, they traveled all the way to the Rabbah all night. And they brought brought the head of Ishbosheth to David in Hebron, saying to the king, "Look, the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life." Yahweh has granted vengeance to my lord, the king this day, against Saul and his descendants. Now remember, one of the other reasons you cut a head off is because they don't have pictures. Like the mafia today would take pictures of people dead to prove that they had killed them. Back then, you don't have cameras, and bodies are too hard to drag around. So you cut the heads off, and that's proof of death. Now, America might return to that now that we can digitally manipulate anything, so who knows? And I I would not be surprised where we're going. So they bring the head. And they're like, look, David, we killed your mortal enemy. We want a reward. And this immediately reminds you of the Amalekite of chapter 1. And you're like, oh, you don't know what's coming. Verse 9, So David replied to Reqab and his brother Ba'ana, the sons of Raman and the Barathite, As surely as Yahweh lives, who has delivered my life from the adversary, when someone told me that Saul was dead, even though he thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag. That was the good news I gave him. You're a little sick, David. Surely when the wicked men have killed an innocent man as he slept in his own house, should I not require blood? From his hands and remove him from the earth. David's like this guy like was killing a guy who was mortally wounded in battle and thought he was helping me and bringing me good news and I killed him. You killed an innocent man while he was sleeping. What do you think I'm going to do to you? So David issued orders to the soldiers and they put him to death and they cut off their hands and their feet and hung them near the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So David deals with them. This story does two things. One, it shows you that David, even now that he's taking the throne, who could have rewarded this guy for taking the life of Ishbosheth, is still committed to his oath to not wipe out the family. And even though Mephibosheth's story is going to be delayed until chapter 9, it anticipates maybe he'll deal with him justly as well. The other thing this is doing is, is it just happens to be sandwiched around Joab. Chapter 1, David swiftly executes justly a man guilty of murder. Here he is swiftly executing justly the murder of a man. In the middle is Joab not being dealt with. And the narrator is intentionally setting this up to let you know this is an inconsistency in David. He is a just king. He is willing to do the hard thing. But not with Joab. Now, right now, you might be asking, you can make some hypothetical guesses. David has told you blatantly that he's, what is he, he can't handle Joab. You also know that Joab is his nephew. As we keep going on, we're going to find out with other people too, David's got a huge weakness. See, in the first part of Samuel, we were introduced to the weakness of pride. We were also introduced to the weakness of him like in the ladies. Now we're introduced to a third weakness. David doesn't deal justly with those close to him. He cannot discipline his own children, his own wives, his own nephews. Anybody who's close to him, he does not discipline like he should. When it comes to anybody in the kingdom, he's an incredibly just king. And the law will be upheld. But when it comes to the people close to him, he ignores it. He plays, he can't deal justly. And we know people like this. This is a very common story in America. There are very powerful men and corporations and businesses who have very little compassion when it comes to the pen. But when it comes to their own family, they do not deal with their children. They do not discipline them. And later as we get older, this is what's going to rip his kingdom apart. Chapter 13 a lifetime of not disciplining his children and not dealing with Joab and not dealing with all these people and the way they should, chapter 13 begins the giant explosion of consequences. And we're going to literally see this rip it apart. And we see this too with families. We see people who they've sacrificed their family and disciplined their kids for the sake of their business and the corporation, and they build this empire and this wealth and kingdom, and then their kids get older and they turn into these scoundrels and imp- with all these addictions and problems and disobedient, and they end up destroying everything. Even the thing that that person sacrificed their family for to build, that family ends up destroying even that because they couldn't keep their family in check and do the right thing there. And David's going to become that presidential figure. The guy who spends all the time in the Oval Office and the presidential kids become the stereotypical problem. They're making the news all the time for getting in trouble because dad (laughs) spends more time at work than anywhere else. And then probably feels guilty when he comes home to discipline. There's lots of reasons why fathers don't discipline. Sometimes they feel guilty that they are gone too long. Sometimes they don't even know how to discipline because they're so disconnected. Lots of different reasons. We don't know what David's reason is, but this is his weakness. And what you know now is he's got a weakness of pride, he's got the weakness of the women, he's got the weakness of not dealing with his family justly, and all of these are going to come together. And even though he's a man after God's own heart, he's got flaws. And this is the important thing we're going to be being, the narrative is going to introduce a new thing to the man after God's own heart. He may be a man after God's own heart, and God will praise him and bless him for that. And God will show grace in his weaknesses, but God will not protect you from the consequences of your faults. And you might think, "Wow, that's kind of awesome! Like, wow, God will overlook all that. All that, da 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 da. Like, all God does is look at the heart. That's so nice. Aren't we saved by grace? Amen. 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 And it's very easy in Samuel one to the first Samuel thing, thing: grace, 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 grace. But Second Samuel is going to remind you, but there's also a danger to grace. And the danger is when there is no judgment from the law, then sometimes we just keep living in our faults and eventually the consequences build up and then they come in and nip us and they destroy us. And you may be saved by grace and God may still be willing to accept you in heaven through his son, but that doesn't mean you're going to have a great life of as you deal with all these consequences because you focus too much on grace. And God is going to remind you there is a double edge to grace, so to speak, for lack of a better phrase, if you do not respond to grace appropriately. And that's what we're getting into now. is Yes, he's a man after God's own heart, but because he doesn't deal with the other things, eventually it will deal with him. So David is now king. But here's the problem. Is the hearts of the people truly unified? No. What this lets you know is that there's already a split here. The split was kind of already there with Saul. But David not being where he was supposed to be when Saul died kind of strengthened that heart divide. And what it's setting you up for is in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, that's exactly where the nation's going to split. And you're going to see David do something here. Later with Absalom, something else is going to happen. Later with Sheba, something else is going to happen. Then Solomon is going to do some things. And even though it will be God who will say, I'm going to split the kingdom as a consequence for your sin, it's going to split exactly where it's been happening all these years because David and Solomon aren't doing what they're supposed to to unify the 12 tribes. This is a very interesting thing that we're going to get into is where, in one sense, David's family falling apart in chapter 13 is a result of God's judgment against them. But it's also happening because David's not a good father. Yes, the kingdom splitting is happening because of God's judgment against Solomon, but it's also happening because David and Solomon played favorites with the tribe of Judah for most of their life. You're seeing this human responsibility and the sovereignty of God just kind of playing out side by side with each other. And so the nation is unified, so to speak, and David is king, and everybody is happy. But under the surface, yeah, we have the United States of America, but we all know we're not really united. And that's how David's reign begins.